Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. If we do not talk about God or the inner life or spirituality or faith, our minds will not be as attuned to transcendence and our lives will not be ordered around these spiritual realities. Uh, But you might even take that a little further because let's say you're listening to this and you're post-Christian or you're un-Christian or you're spiritual but you're not Christian. What do you care? Well, you actually should care, because what we've seen in the last 50 years is a massive decline, not just in Christian words, not just in the word atonement or some big, meaty theological phrase. We've seen a decline in basic words of morality and virtue. The word grace has been declining. Uh, The word mercy, declining. Compassion words, kindness words, the word courage, all of those words have been declining. So what's happened is, is now we wake up in 2018 and Donald Trump is president and you're hearing what you're hearing in this 24-7 news cycle. And we look around and we say, gosh, we live in a culture that is not courageous, that is not gracious, that is not kind, that is not merciful, that is not compassionate. And what we're only now realizing is, is we have actually been shaping our culture to be this by the language shifts that we have allowed to go on in the last 50 or more years. We have actually shaped ourselves by the words we have and have not used. Communal language has decreased. Individual individual language has increased. No wonder we're, we're obsessed with the self. Uh, Economic language has increased while ethical language has decreased. No wonder we only care about the bottom line. So does it matter if we're speaking God? Well, actually, it matters a whole heck of a lot and more than we ever even realized. What's up, everybody? It's the Deconstructionist Podcast. <laughs> Adam's goal. You, you know you, what? You do it sometime. <laughs> Adam, Adam will like do the intro and then he looks straight at me and I can't not laugh. I, I look, can't. I look at you for two reasons. I try to try to stop myself. Number one time. is I'm always seeking your approval. <laughs> <laughs> Number two. I know I can make you laugh just by looking at you. It does, I, I crack so easily. That's why I like. <laughs> Anytime we're trying to like mess with people, like growing up or whatever, and like I was in on the prank or whatever, oh, dude, screwed. I'm like, I'm screwed. Done. Toast. I'm just. I can't even. Even if you're not, if I feel like you're looking at me, I'm done. So, anyway, I'm terrible at that. Don't ask me to hold your secrets. <laughs> like this. Exactly. Ex- exactly. Just like this. <laughs> I can't. So this episode was one of those episodes where we had to give some. We were silent. We were doing some silent high fives. Yeah. There were several silent high fives in this episode. 
This dude's crushing it right crushing now. Crushing it. I cannot, well, I've always enjoyed his writing. I, I'll be honest, I haven't really heard much of his speaking. And oh my gosh, this guy's kind of a tour de force because uh, I've read several of his articles like Atlantic, Religion News Service, um, uh, Relevant. You know, I've just, I've always just dug his take on things because I think he's really fair and never really thought about having him as a podcast guest until this book came out and I started to realize like, oh my gosh, like he'd make a great guest. And then it happened. And who, who do we got here, John? Let's just let him, let him know. So this is Jonathan Merritt and he is an award-winning contributor for the Atlantic. Um, he's also, as you said, he's published for USA Today, BuzzFeed, the Washington Post, New York Times. Um, he's appeared on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, ABC News, and NPR. And as if one degree, graduate degree wasn't enough, he has two graduate degrees in it's religion, really and he resides in uh, my brother-in-law's Brooklyn. neck of the woods in Brooklyn. They go to the same church, basically. Yeah, they used to. Yeah. yeah. So Jonathan Merritt is um, a bit of a firebrand, fancies himself a bit of a provocateur in a good way. You know, speaking truth to power, Brueggemann style. Yeah. And this new book that he has out is so right up our alley. If you listen to this podcast, you got to get this book. Um, this episode is just going to be an appetizer for the book. Everything that John and I end up, it always comes back to language for us. And how so many people in religions, especially, are so careless with the language that they're using that it starts to just become devoid of meaning. Eventually, uh, our, our belief systems are so built on our language and our verbalization of certain things that eventually you throw the stuff around too much, the language stops meaning anything, and oh, lo and behold, the beliefs start to lose traction. Uh, you find yourself in a full-blown deconstruction going, what does any of it mean anymore? And it all comes back to language. Yeah. And that's kind of what this book is about in... That was a terrible summary of the book, but that's, that's how it resonated with me. Yeah. And so we talk about the importance of words, yeah. sp specifically sacred words. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is he, he commissioned this study uh, in looking at like how often do we actually have real spiritual religious type conversations. And he found that there was a direct co correlation between the, uh, the amount of religious or spiritual conversations we had and what we actually do behaviors. Yeah. Behaviors. So like, you know, fewer religious conversations results in fewer uh, acts of kindness and grace and mercy and that sort of thing. So it's there's so this, true. There's this connection or, or I should say there's this disconnect now right. between both what we say and what we do. Right. And I just love his, um, his chapter titles. Great chapter titles. Ble blessed. Hollow hashtags and marble toilets. <laughs> that is blessed. Knocked it out of the, out of the park. But, um, but yeah, so I, I think what's, what's interesting is, is we were having this very conversation about how we have, especially with evangelical Christianity within that, that world, we have uh, used these terms or this terminology, these words, so often uh, that we've basically just drained any like real meaning that they may have had at some point. Yep. Yeah. You know, how many times you, uh, hashtag blessed? Hashtag, right. What does that even mean right. anymore? You know. Right. 
I, th- I can't remember if it was Dallas. I want to attribute this quote to Dallas Willard. Um, I could be one of those guys to pick up my phone and Google it before I say it, but I'm not going to do that. So if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. But <laughs> you've heard the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah. I think it was Willard that said that's wrong. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, which breeds contempt. So you get so familiar with something that you assume it, once you assume it, you actually stop familiarizing yourself with it in any deliberate, intentional way. And it's still there, void of meaning. Yeah. And so you kind of start to hate it a little bit because it's like, you know, dad, why do we pray? Or what does it mean to, you know, what does grace actually even mean? And you're sitting there looking at your kids going, I don't freaking know. Yeah, no I'm idea. Just, I don't know. We've always just done it. Yeah. Like that Pete Rollins parable about the Buddhist monk that tied the cat. To the pole. Remember that one? No? Vaguely. Yeah. <laughs> so the Buddhist monk ties the cat to the pole because it's annoying him when he's meditating. And his disciples see him tie a cat to the pole. And so they think, oh, we're supposed to tie cats to poles. Oh, right. right. You know, when, <laughs> when we meditate. Right. You know, and so, you know, then eventually the monk dies and they buy a new, you know, they keep doing the cat thing and then the cat dies and they're like, well, we need to buy new cats. <laughs> the time to poles while we're meditating. It's because you're not really thinking about what you're doing. You're just... Going through the motions. You're going through the motions of whoever told you to go through the motions. You're not thinking for yourself. And, and you created a cat tying ritual. Exactly. So anyway, this is a, a really fun, very energetic um, interview, and I think you guys are really, really going to like it. So Absolutely. Other than that, um, thank you, those of you who have uh, recently joined our Patreon campaign. Um, we've got some fun goodies on there, so if you want to be a part of what we're doing, um, go to our website, www.thedeconstructionist.com, and you can find our Patreon links there. You can find all of our episodes that we've ever done. And we're in, we're in the 80s now, which is crazy. Um, you can also find our blogs. So any blog posts that we've written, we've had some guest bloggers as well. Uh, and you can also find uh, links to our social media. So you can listen to us uh, blabber on about things that have no real, you know, just whatever, cat pictures mostly. And I think based on this <laughs> interview with Jonathan, yeah. I think I need to write another blog. Yes. Tim Keller is my gateway drug. Adam is overdue, guys. I'm so, super overdue. I'm so, so, I've been so busy, you man. Should, I'm sorry. You should all pressure him. To, but uh, I do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that. I'm going to get that going. But yeah. without further ado, yes, we bring you Jonathan freaking Merritt. Jonathan Merritt coming to us live all the way from Brooklyn, which gives you tons of street cred to people that are in the Midwest, like like John and I are. <laughs> right. um, we've been really looking forward to having you on for a long time. So thanks for making some time with us to talk about language and God and why that's all such a big problem. Um, we're really excited to have this conversation with you. Oh, the, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me on. So this is a, a really cool book. <clears throat> I especially love um, chapter titles, and you have some of the best title chapters and subtitles I think I've ever seen in a book. So well done. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I was, I was sort of like, you know, originally when I was working on this book, I'm like, well, I want to have the titles of the word. And then I also want to have something creative. And I, and I finally was just like, why don't you just do both? (laughs) So, uh, I figure you can do whatever you want with a book. So why not have subtitle for a book and subtitles for chapters? So it worked, I think. 
um, I thought it was kind of fun. That's that's awesome. Super yeah, I love fun. it. So, so tell us a little bit about your background and uh, a little bit about who you are for people who may not be familiar. Yeah. Well, how far do you want me to go back? That's a, that's a big question. Whatever you want, you want man. <laughs> I mean, I, I was raised very much a, a fundamentalist uh, yes. evangelical. Um, I was raised by a very a prominent uh, evangelical megachurch pastor who is still to this day is a, a TBN preacher um, and uh, was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention growing up, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Also, you know, uh, a very conservative uh, denomination. And so evangelical Christianity was, was like the, the air I breathed, the water I drank, the food I ate. It, it, it's just like that was my life. It's funny. People often say, like, what was it like? growing up in the home you grew up in. And it's weird because I don't have anything to compare it to. You know, I woke up every morning in that world. Tuesday night was visitation, uh, evangelizing people, knocking on doors, you know, handing out tracts. Wednesday night was prayer meeting, church supper. Uh, Saturday mornings oftentimes was evangelizing again. Uh, Sunday mornings, you're in church for several hours. Sunday school, serving, teaching. You got a quick bite for lunch. You're back for youth choir, Sunday night church. So, and I went to Christian school uh, for ninth, 10th and 11th grade. So it was just like, it was a lot of Christianity or at least a particular expression of Christianity that I thought was the whole of Christianity, the right way to be Christian. Uh, I went to college at Liberty University, which is uh, Jerry Falwell, the late Reverend Jerry Falwell's school. Uh, now is the uh, the school for you know of, of Jerry Falwell Jr., who's a big kind of Trump evangelical. Uh, after that, uh, I, I majored in in biology and chemistry, and I got done. I thought I was going to go maybe to medical school, but then I, I kind of woke up one day and thought I'm going to be a writer. I, I just want to write. And my parents thought I was crazy, but ended up in seminary. Came back as as uh, PKs are often want to do to serve at my dad's church. Did another uh, degree at a more liberal seminary, and fast forward a little bit. Quit working at the church full time. Became a full time writer. Uh, moved to New York City, and you can almost kind of map a, a trajectory there from PK who kind of marched in lockstep with conservative evangelicalism. Uh, to a guy who was kind of uh, loosely evangelical but was beginning to explore outside of those bounds, to somebody who became a bit more of a progressive Christian, to now uh, somebody who eats, drinks, and breathes a totally different world, a totally different culture living in New York City, but has somehow in the midst of that maintained a sense of faithfulness. So Maybe that's the long story medium version uh, <laughs> of who Jonathan Merritt is, where he's come from, and where he is now. So great follow-up question here because, I mean, I think you're talking so much right now to people are going to really relate to that that listen to this show. Um, I think what we have a lot here is the, the curious people um, that don't think maybe they're allowed to be curious or people that have undergone some kind of traumatic trans transformation or a slow transformation. 
I relate a little bit more to like to your story. It's kind of slow. There wasn't anything traumatic about it. It was just curiosity just kept leading me around. Um, So as a follow-up, you know, to your background, all of this kind of change that you went through, we would kind of say that that implies some level of, you know, deconstruction. That's, you know, kind of what our podcast namesake is. We say it kind of tongue in cheek, but you know, what we mean by that is, you know, at some point you started to say, I'm not just going to go with what I was given. I kind of want to, I kind of want to figure this out a little bit for myself. So could you tell us a little bit more about like what that, what that meant for you? And, and now you're sort of known as like, you know, a bit of a provocateur in, in some ways, you know, you like to, you know, speak um, truth to power and, and, you know, call a spade a spade. That's what John and I love about you. Um, so talk a little bit about what that was like and uh, what that sort of, would you have called that a deconstruction? You don't, you don't have to, but we'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, certainly I do. I think, I think that there is no faith uh, apart from deconstruction. And I actually think that's a very uh, biblical notion. Uh, When I was a child, I thought like a child. Uh, But something happened, right? I I grew up. What what, what has to happen? You, You have to change. You have to transform. You have to mature. And that is the life of faith. Now, uh, what happens with a lot of folks in a kind of a post-enlightenment world is they just stop at construction. They were given this childhood version of faith, and when they were a child, they thought like a child, and when they were an adult, they still thought like a child. And it was a safer way to think. It was a, a way that didn't ask much of them except to memorize the answers that they were given as a child and then to hold as tightly to those answers as possible. And a lot of people are content to live life that way. I don't think that's the Christian way uh, of living uh, life, but I think a lot of people do live that way. Mm. They live in the, you have heard it said, but they never cross over to the, but I say. Mm. There's never that transition that happens in their lives. And, uh, and that's okay, because I come from that world, and I think a lot of people, there is no deconstruction without a construction. So I need that world to create the world that I live in, the world that probably you live in, which is a world that builds upon, that, that um, reconstructs out of uh, those frameworks. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I'm not pent up or angry about people who say, yeah, don't touch my system or who say that, that deconstructing faith is bad. You know, on my pod, I have a podcast called Seekers and Speakers, and um, I, I had Andy Stanley on that podcast, and he used a quote there that I've now stolen from him mm-hmm. because I'd never read it before, and it's fascinating. And it's from a book by, of all, of all people, Karen Armstrong, mm. who wrote, wrote a book called uh, The Case for God. Love that book. Um, yeah. Yeah, the case for God, you know, it's sort of about what religion really means. And in that book, she says that we form our, our, our earliest notions for God about the same time that we form our notions of Santa Claus. Uh, what happens, though, is, is as we mature, as we grow up, we, we, we grow out of the Santa Claus myth. Uh, but oftentimes, we don't grow out of those childhood notions of God. 
We, we retain those. And what happens is, is in adulthood, our, uh, our childhood notions of God, of faith, of spirituality, of prayer, uh, of various doctrines don't really work so well for us anymore. And we have a choice uh, at that point when those notions of God no longer work for us. We can either double down, uh, grip those notions more tightly, mm. ignore the science, ignore the sociology, ignore the tensions, and continue to reassert those childhood underformed notions of God, or we can allow our faith to grow up alongside us, to mature as we have matured. I think what this book, what Learning to Speak God from Scratch really is, is an invitation to allow your notions of faith and even the vocabulary of faith to grow up as you've grown up. Uh, a lot of people, I think, will resist that, and that's okay. But if I think there are a lot of people out there, too, who say, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child. When I was a child, I spoke God like a child. But it's time to speak God like an adult. It's time to, to grow up. Mm. That is, in my view, what it means to learn to speak God from scratch. Well, it's been fun. Good night, everybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Well put. I got nothing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I love that, man. That was awesome. That's, oh, what a great segue into uh, talking about the, the book itself, which is, again, as you said, learning to speak God from scratch, why sacred words are vanishing and how we can revive them. So, so let's talk about language because that's a very important thing to us and, and our podcast as well. Yes. Um, as, as I'm sure you could tell, uh, we, we kind of hijacked this word deconstruction from Jacques Derrida, this this French philosopher that a lot of people are, have no concept of beyond the fact that he looks kind of like David Lynch, you know? Um, <laughs> but like, but one of the things Derrida, you know, talked about a lot was the inherent nature of, of uh, language being unstable uh, because as, as you talk about in the book, language uh, words and meaning evolves over time. And so, so talk a little bit about the, you know, what, what, what was the motivation behind writing a book on, talking about God? Because I know a lot of our listeners come out of the evangelical background and they're going to be like, what are you talking about? We talk about God all the time. I mean, we, have, we use all sorts of fun Christian lingo and, you know, we're having all these great conversations. So, so what do you mean? And, and I think um, this is a great time to talk about the, uh, the studies that you also conducted to, to back up kind of your, uh, your assertions in this book. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, um, I've always been a firm, I have a certain way of understanding what it means to write and to be a writer. And I understand for a lot of folks, they have uh, different philosophies. But my philosophy is that uh, because we are people who have story sewn into our DNA, mm. that the best writing is in part narrative and should be at least partially autobiographical, right? You should write about things that you know. You should write about things that you've lived. Mm. It's why I get so tired of, of uh, you know, you get a lot of people writing books today, like white evangelicals writing books on the LGBT community. Oh, man. Uh, on uh, immigrants, on... Um, you know, you have John Piper writing a book about race and racism. Yeah, come on. Um, <laughs> you, you, you get a lot of folks out there 
who know not what of they speak, who know not what of they write. And I don't want to be that kind of writer. So, you know, I had turned 30 uh, before I had moved to New York and I had written three books. And, um, you know, I was self-aware enough to know that a 30-year-old does not have 150,000 words of wisdom to give the world. So I had already gifted the world far more than I had in my possession. (laughs) And I just decided, I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not writing books anymore. I can make a fine living, uh, consulting, ghostwriting, coaching authors, writing articles and columns. So I'm not writing a book again until I really feel like I have a message that's so important that I've lived, that is deep, deep down in my bones and that I can write it knowing that this is my story too. And, uh, you know, the Christian industrial complex uh, basically encourages us, those of us who are writers, to write a book about every two years. You know, even now, this book is, this book still has the literary placenta on it, and you've got my editor saying, when's the next book coming in? (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, So I love you, Shannon, if you're listening. I love her. (laughs) But I'm gonna, I have the same tack uh, with this, whatever the next book will be. And it could be 10 years. I don't know. But I'm not going to write that book every two years just because the industry says you should. Well, what happened was I moved to New York City five years ago. And I ran into this culture that didn't have the same language patterns that I have. They didn't work from the same script I worked from when I was a Christian college student, when I was a seminary student, when I was a full-time or, or three-fourths time minister moonlighting as a writer, suddenly I, I was running into people and I was talking about my job as a religion writer or my life uh, in spiritual terms, and people would kind of stop and ask me for a definition, please. And I couldn't really give them one. Wow. I started to realize not only did they not understand what I was saying, I didn't actually understand it either. You know, it, it was like I was using a word like color or the. I, it was a word that popped up a lot in my vocabulary, but I didn't really know what it meant. And I think a lot of people are like that. I, I think a lot of people, you know, who are stuck in the construction phase, they've resisted deconstruction. If you ask that person, how often have you stopped and just asked yourself, what am I saying when I'm saying what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes. Most people, most people never ask themselves that question. They've never actually stepped outside of the system to critique the system. And that's part of the reason why their house of cards have, have stayed so nice, neat, and tidy. But as soon as you step outside of it, and a city like New York City will either, you either will go to that place or it will beat you into that place. (laughs) Where you have to step outside of the system and critique it. And once you do, man, that flick of the cards, it all comes falling down. Uh, Words that you thought were mundane now feel so negative, triggering, jarring, they get stuck in your throat. Or words that you've used so often, you realize they, they, they sort of float away like a cloud. What did that mean? I can't even get my hands, my mouth around that word. And what happened with me was 
I just stopped having spiritual conversations altogether. Mm. I, I just realized one day I was no longer comfortable having these kinds of conversations, engaging in God talk. And after I began to scratch the surface, to dig a little bit, you know, I put my journalist hat on, I woke up and realized that it's not just me because the, the changes that I'm experiencing, the changing world that I'm experiencing in New York, people are experiencing that world all across the country. The world is changing from top to bottom, east to west, it is changing. And it doesn't matter if you live in New York or Tulsa or Dallas or Santa Barbara, people are feeling this tinch, this pinch in, in the pluralistic uh, environments that they live in. And when I realized just how far this stretched, I thought, okay, now it's time to pick up the pen, to start writing, to take my own journey, and to simply tell the story of that journey, of what it meant to learn to speak God from scratch. And when I did that, I think it turned out to be, in my opinion, uh, a really good book because a lot of people, there's, a, there's this big difference, I often say, between knowing and naming a lot of people know the things I've talked about in this book, but nobody's ever named it for them. It's not, it's not that I'm coming up with anything crazy, but I'm naming something that countless people, tens of millions of people have felt. And I hope when people read this book, that's what they say. They go, I felt this tension. I felt these, the, this cognitive dissonance, and you have named it for me. You put your finger on the tension that I've been wrestling with for a long time. And I think there's something that's that's powerful in that by by naming things, oftentimes it it kind of relieves some of that tension. I think so. Yeah, I I think to to realize you're not the the only one. It, yeah. You know, there's a lot of people they they challenge their system, and they feel like it, it's like you know you took the blue pill and everybody else is in the matrix, right? And you, you're, it's very disorienting, but it's helpful to see the statistics, to see, you know, I conducted a big survey for this book, more than a thousand Americans, to find that only 7% of Americans say they have spiritual or religious conversations regularly. Only 13% of practicing Christians do. So if you feel this tension, if you say, yeah, I don't really feel comfortable having these types of conversations, it's comforting to read a book like this and to realize, well, you know what? You're not alone. You're actually in the majority. There are a lot of people just like you. Sometimes we talk on the telephone, running dry, the conversation slow. So I, I think that's huge. That so you talk about that in your book, and you also list off some of the reasons behind why people are are, are having less frequent conver- uh, spiritual conversations. What are, what are some of those those reasons that you found within uh, your research? You know, in the book, I have this um, the the thirteen top thirteen reasons I, that uh, it's sort of in a nice little infographic, and I could read you those, but I'll tell you the way that I divide them up. Uh, I divide them up into uh, indifference, ignorance, and not in a pejorative way, and avoidance. So ignorance is all the people who say, 
you know what? I don't really understand what these words mean. Uh, I don't know enough about these topics to talk about them. Or even religious people who say, I've talked about these things so often that they, they become shop-worn, hollow, mm-hmm. uh, emptied of meaning. So that's, that's one group. And that's the group that is, is probably the lower group. Uh, and then you have people who uh, display what I call um, uh, in the book, um, I talk about avoidance. And there's a whole bunch of different uh, things that I lump into the avoidance category. And it's the one that I'm most concerned about. It's people who say, for one reason or another, I may know what these words mean, um, but I just don't like what they've come to mean. So you have people who say, you know, these things are explosive. They cause tension or arguments. That's the number one reason people give. You have another group of people who say, you know what, I've been really hurt by these words. Um, I had a pastor or a parent or a friend who used religious language to shame me or to scold me or to beat me down, to oppress me, to marginalize me, to suppress uh, me, to repress uh, who I really am. And those folks then say, I don't really want to talk about these things because I've got a bad memory attached to them. And, and finally, you have people who, who say that these words have become too politicized. You know, they, they, they hear the president or the vice president or the attorney general or someone else in the political realm uh, use these words as means to an end. Uh, they use these words to basically coerce uh, or mobilize uh, the electorate. And they go, you know, this makes me feel like these words are kind of desacralized. And at that point, they just kind of walk away from it. They just think, I don't, I don't really want to use these words if, if they're just tools Uh, they don't really get at something that is sacred. They're just tools for politicians, for opportunists. And so there are a lot of people that avoid it because of that. Regardless, I think there are a lot of people who, who would say you could pick one or two or three things from the list at any given time. And that's the reason why they walk away based on their past, based on, uh, their geography, uh, based on their religious history. For one reason or another, they say, no, I'm out. Yeah, I think um, what I love about this and why it, you know, it gels so much with what John and I are just trying to do in creating a humble space here um, where people can participate is um, the, the, these words you know, have all these things that you delineated. And you probably could have written a series of books. They, they probably would have been boring because they would have been so long. But on, on all the reasons why these, you know, there's probably a lot more reasons than you laid out in the book as to why these, you know, words are falling away. And one of, the, mm-hmm. one of the things that John and I have kind of discovered is that people just don't feel like there's permission to take up the conversation and do something with these words because they feel like they've just been given these words and what they've been given, they either have to just use or not use instead of maybe do something new with it. And I think that that's one of the, the ways you start to go in the book. So, we, we talk a lot about just using the words intentionally and uh, moving away from what we call like a belief by proxy, whereas like, 
well, this word has to mean this because that's how this leader has always used it or this tradition has always used it instead of um, being invited. So it, it seems like in the book, you're actually inviting people to reclaim and inviting them to, to intentionally participate in what's always been happening with language and with these words. Is that, am I, am I off my rocker on that? No, no, I think, you, I think you've got it uh, perfectly. There are a lot of people out there who, for them, and I don't think this is you, that deconstruction is not the end all. It, it is a tool for advancing through transformation. And there are a lot of people that get stuck in deconstruction, so they just start pitching things and tearing things down, and they become cynical and skeptical, and that's, you know, before you know it, you're just part of some, like, avant-garde wing of <laughs> the Episcopal Church, and you never, you're, you're not really a part of the, you know, you're, or you're post-Christian. Right. Um, there, there are healthy ways, though, to, to do deconstruction, and, what, and when it comes to language, I think the healthy way— is this kind of invitational approach to reimagine what these words mean and more specifically what the concepts behind the words mean. You know, like you take a word, a word like sin, you know, a lot of people don't like that word. And so what they do is they just pitch it. They just stop using it. But that really is addresses it, it's to it, that 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 approach addresses a problem that doesn't exist and ignores the problem that does exist. I'll explain what I mean. A word has no meaning in and of itself. It only has the meaning we give to it. Mm-hmm. Right? Nobody is offended by the word sin. The word sin is just the letter S put next to the letter I put next to the letter N, and that in and of itself does not offend. It's the, it, it, a sin is an empty cardboard box. What people are offended by is the idea that has been placed inside that box. It's the idea of sin, not the word sin, that people wrestle with, that people are maybe offended by. So to just throw the box away uh, doesn't deal with the real problem, which is the bo- the, what's inside the box. Right. So what I'm hoping we can do in this book is to invite people into this process to borrow from um, um, N.T. Wright. It's it's not just uh, construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. It is packing, unpacking, repacking. So you you have to open up that box. You say, oh, my gosh, I have tension here. Mm-hmm. OK, rather than just throw it away. What if we were all invited into a process where we got together and we un, we un, we opened up that box and we unpacked what was inside and we allowed ourselves to be critical and to say here's what I don't like about this here's here's what's going on with that word that's not working well for us here are ways that that what we put in that box has been used to hurt someone to oppress someone to marginalize someone to uh, create this false us them barrier to misrepresent who we believe God is that somehow makes God less than loving or or um, uh, exclusive um, that only loves certain people or that makes God's love conditional. Okay, well now how can we reimagine that idea in a way that's more helpful and then pack it back in that box? 
Now we have a better way of speaking that word that is life-giving and not soul-sucking. You know, a lot of people are just so intellectually lazy, theologically lazy, linguistically lazy, or they're just too afraid of the process of what might be birthed if they begin to tinker with that box that they won't do it, they won't touch it. So doubts are not welcome. Questions are not welcome when it comes to these words and the ideas they represent. But what I hope to do in this book is to give people permission, permission to step into this process, permission to to lean against these sacred cows, permission to ask the hard questions about whether or not we've actually spoken these words or understood these words in ways that are true, meaningful, and helpful. So I think you're right. That really is what this book is. It's an invitation into that process. And as a follow-up question, because I think that's so important, people need even more than just permission. So I'm glad you, you ended with invitation. Um, they need almost like a rallying cry. They need that invitation. And as you kind of go to in the book, um, because it's all about you know behavior formation, uh, you know Noam, Ch- Noam Chomsky um, if it, people don't know who Noam Chomsky is, he's like, you know, one of the godfathers of linguistics. And I remember once when he said that language isn't merely designed for communication. It hasn't evolved just as, you know, a tool of communication. It's not just uh, messages flying back and forth. Um, actually, all the research is against that. He said language is actually evolved as a means or a mode of creating and interpreting thoughts, and thoughts are the drivers uh, of behavior. And you kind of go there in this book. So language is important as you talk about behavior. Could you talk a little bit about why this is you know, so important in, in your words? Yeah, there is a, um, there's a lot of research now uh, that is emerging. And it, and it answers the question, really, why does this matter? Yes. You know, why does this matter? It matters because in part because uh, linguistics teaches us that, and, it, and, 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 it, and this is, a lot of this is new research, that there is this incredible connection between uh, the words that we use or don't use, the language that we speak, and the thoughts we think, and a connection between the thoughts we think and our behavior patterns patterns, the, the, the lives that we live. All right, so what do I mean by that? I mean that um, when, when you, you use certain words, it's shaping you in a way um, that if you used other words or spoke a different language, it would shape you uh, differently. So, for example, you know, you get, uh, I, I, I give this example in the book about future tenses, like future language. In the, in the English language, we speak a futured language, right? We have, uh, I said yesterday, I'm going to go on the deconstructionist podcast tomorrow. I'm going to go, right? It, it, there's, it's a futured tense. But if you spoke, I don't know, uh, uh, Chinese, um, or I have friends who, fr- who are from Thailand. Those are not futured languages. They, they would say, I go on Deconstructionist Podcast. And you would know from context clues, from the other words that are kind of put around that, that it would happen in the future, but it wouldn't be futured, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, 
you go, that doesn't, well, who cares? Why does that matter? It matters actually uh, substantially because if you compare our culture with a non-futured speaking culture, the futured culture, we will um, think about the future more often than they do. And our lives have become ordered around the future in ways that those cultures have not. Uh, we practice more safe sex per capita than, than non-future cultures. We smoke less than non-future cultures. We will save more per capita for retirement than non-future cultures. We think more and prepare more for death uh, than they will. Uh, even the, it even shapes our, our notion of a future self. You know, when Oprah Winfrey says, uh, you should go out and become your best self, that's an idea that works very well to people who've been shaped by the English language. And so it explodes in America, right? Uh, it wouldn't work as well in places where they don't have these, these um, notions of, of the future self that have been developed in the same way. Now, they've been developed in different ways than we have, right? And, and maybe is it better uh, that we think about the future or worse? I think it's just a thing. I think it's just different. I don't know that it's better or worse, but it does shape us. Mm. So now let's take that back to speaking God. If we do not talk about God or the inner life or spirituality or faith, our minds will not be as attuned to transcendence and our lives will not be ordered around these spiritual realities. Uh, but you might even take that a little further because let's say you're listening to this and you're post-Christian or you're unchristian or, or you're spiritual but you're not Christian. What do you care? Well, you actually should care because what we've seen in the last 50 years is a massive decline, not just in Christian words, not just in the word atonement or some big meaty theological phrase. We've seen a decline in basic words of morality and virtue. The word grace has been declining. Uh, the word mercy declining, compassion words, kindness words, the word courage all of those words have been declining. So what's happened is, is now we wake up in 2018 and Donald Trump is president and you're hearing what you're hearing in this 24-7 news cycle. And we look around and we say, gosh, we live in a culture that is not courageous, that is not gracious, that is not kind, that is not merciful, that is not compassionate. And what we're only now realizing is, is we have actually been shaping our culture to be this by the language shifts that we have allowed to go on in the last 50 or more years. We have actually shaped ourselves by the words we have and have not used. Communal language has decreased. Individual, individual language has increased. No wonder we're, we're obsessed with the self. Uh, economic language has increased while ethical language has decreased. No wonder we only care about the bottom line. So does it matter if we're speaking God? Well, actually it matters a whole heck of a lot and more than we ever even realized. Bones of stone the water I've got time 
Oh, gosh, you, you beat me to the punch because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, because I, I know one of the other things that you write uh, frequently about is religion and politics, and it seems, uh, it, it's been a bit frustrating over the last couple of years, kind of watching the news cycle and saying, hey, where, where, where are the Christians when it comes to putting our, our, our money where our mouth is? And there seems to be this disconnect between what we say we believe and what we actually do. Yeah, you know, there, there, is, there is a disconnect, and some of it happens in more progressive or uh, less institutionally religious circles where people have this kind of notion of, like, me and God, and they think, well, um, you know, it doesn't matter if I talk about faith so long as, as I practice it myself. Uh, you know, whatever, it's all about belief. It's sort of a Gnostic view of faith, an internalized view of faith. And a very American or Western individualized notion of spirituality. But I, I think what we're seeing is that that notion of spirituality is a cul-de-sac. It's a dead end. It doesn't go anywhere. It fails to create progeny. Mm. Um, that we are created, um, as, as I say in the book, speech creatures, people who talk. Um, I, I say not just homo sapiens, but homo verba. We are, we are uh, creatures who uh, live with language, who transmit information um, with language, uniquely with language, not completely, but uniquely and even primarily with language. And so we, we often think it doesn't really matter if we speak, but that, that acknowledges one one function of language without acknowledging the, the other function of language. Let me explain what I mean. Language, you can think about it as kind of a two-sided coin. On the one side, language is expressive. So when I talk about God, I'm expressing something that I've experienced or that I feel or that I think or that I believe about God. But the other side of that coin is that language is also formative, that when I speak about God, I'm shaping myself and you by those words, that those words are kind of chipping away at us and shaping us in some way. It's why I think, you know, people will say, oh, liturgy sucks. Let's just have this kind of freestyle, uh, low uh, church form of worship. Well, that's all well and good if you only have one side of the coin, if you only have the expressive side. Then all that matters is, is, is so long as you're saying words that are your words that you came up with that are expressing what you think, feel, and believe, mm. then you're good. But what about the notion of language is formative? Well, in that case, liturgy suddenly has a value that we have overlooked because this is time-tested language that has been fine-tuned over centuries that chips away at us in a certain direction, that forms us into people, that certain types of people, whether or not I came up with that word, whether or not that word is an exact representation of what I feel or think or believe inside, we can trust that language that it's forming me in some way. And so we have to, I think, acknowledge 
that we have both of these kind of aspects uh, of language at work at any given time. And that, that causes us, I think, to have to be stewards of this kind of public use of language that we're seeing now in, uh, in, the, in the political realm, in the public squ- square. So good, man. I mean, I want to ask you a million follow-up questions just to that answer, but I want to get to this next question because I'm really curious to get you, and I think a lot of our listeners will be curious to, to hear your thoughts on this. So, um, you know, the conservative critique, and if you read like, you know, uh, was it Tim Muehlhoff from Christianity Today, um, you know, reviewed your book, and you liked a lot about it, but one of the things that, that stuck out that I'd love to get your thoughts on is, you know, he was kind of trying to say that you're going postmodern and subjective and it clashes with a high view of scripture, which I happen to strongly disagree with. But um, I was wondering, what are your thoughts to people that pick this book up and, and think like, oh, well, you're just telling me I can invent all this meaning myself. I know you're not saying that, but I think it'd be worth hearing a little bit about that. Well, I, I always, I always, um, whenever people use postmodern as a critique, <laughs> it, it, it's like, it's like, okay, what are you doing? Yeah, you're on. doing modern, you're doing modernist <laughs> theology and I'm doing post. So, well, we're both enculturated, right? You just happen to be like 50 years too late. Like what is, <laughs> so, and, and here are guys who say, you know, all we care about is truth. So I don't really care if it's postmodern or not. I have no desire to classify it that way or classify it a different way. The question he should be asking is, is what I'm saying correct? Is it true? Is it getting at something that is, that is right and that is, is needed? Uh, you know, if you read this book, you, you're going to have a real hard time walking away from it and saying, I don't have a high view of the Bible because right. I talk about the Bible at length. Uh, I am in many ways very much evangelical in that I'm always coming back to the text. I'm always wrestling with the text. Now, Mid-rash. what I don't believe, I, exactly, uh, I don't believe that the Bible is the only book we need for all time. <laughs> and nobody believes that either, that it's the only source of knowledge. If you believe that, you're not going to go to the doctor, you're not going to go to a financial advisor, you're not going to go to college you're just going to read your Bible and you're going to get everything you need. We all know that there's other kinds of knowledge and that, you know, to, to quote uh, one of my good friends, Nancy Piercy, who says, you know, all truth is God's truth. Uh, it, it, that's true. Uh, and we have believed as Christians for a long time that we can wrestle with other ideas such as linguistics, science, history, which is what I'm doing in this book, without somehow believing that um, we've thrown out the Bible and we, you know that we don't care what the what the Word of God says. I care very much uh, what the Word of God says. But if if what he's saying is, and I think this is what Tim is saying, who's Tim is a very nice guy, um, but he also comes from a very much a, a, a fossilization yes. way of thinking, and and I have a lot of empathy for that. I came from that. But it's just not where I live anymore. But I understand where he's coming from. He says, don't mess with my system. Right. If you mess with my system, it, it creates uh, chaos. It destabilizes it. It will, ask, it will take that nice, tidy, uh, tidy uh, Biola-trained way of thinking and shake it up a little bit. And I can understand Tim saying he'd rather just keep things nice and neat. 
the the unfortunate thing is is it's just not the way language works. It's just not. Uh, what I'm doing when I when I say we have to be imaginative when it comes to words, and we have to do that or language will die. I'm not arguing my position. I'm trying to be compassionate and just tell people the way that it is. A hundred out of a hundred linguists will tell you language will either change or it will die. Language is always moving toward evolution or extinction. So if everybody out there reads this book and says, I'm fine, let's just, be, let's just fossilize everything. Don't touch my words. We're not going to have any discussions on this. The way that I understand these words, uh, what I understand these words to mean is what they should mean for all time. That's fine. We'll all sit here. And by the time I'm 90 years old, we can have a funeral for sacred speech in America because it will be extinct if current trends persist. If, if people who have that perspective, the predominant fundamentalist or evangelical perspective, if their perspective persists, then sacred speech will die in our lifetime. Uh, I'm presenting another way. It's the way of N.T. Wright. It's the way of Walter Brueggemann. It's the way of Richard Rohr. It's the way of C.S. Lewis. It is the way of every linguist who has studied uh, language. And if you don't like that way, that's okay. You, you can reject that. Uh, what I'm trying to do is to acknowledge uh, the way that language works. And language must, it must change over time. It must be reimagined. Now, does that mean that, uh, you know, well, sin, you know, Jonathan's just saying sin means whatever he wants it to mean. Well, no, that's not true. No. Uh, if, a, if something means anything, then something means nothing. Uh, but what I, I use C.S. Lewis's metaphor. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Studies in Words. It's a big, thick book on language. And it's not quite as popular as uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but it's also <laughs> not quite as readable. Still really uh, good, but though. In that, in that book, he says that, that words, language, it's like a tree. And it has to grow. It has to change. Otherwise, it's dead. It's dying. And so you have this kind of trunk, right? And that's this like central idea. But over time, you sprout branches, and those branches show new life, but all around the same idea. So let me give you an example of this. You take the word sin, because that's a word we've talked about. The word sin in the earliest conceptions uh, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, is lawlessness, right? You break a rule. We have the law. We get the law. You break the law. That's sin. So that's how that early as the Jewish, uh, uh, the, the, the Israelite community, the Hebrew community is being formed, that's the way they talk about sin exclusively. They're not other notions of sin. That's how they're talking about sin. By the time you get to temple Judaism, that has morphed. A new branch has kind of come out from that tree trunk. The tree trunk is like sin as what's wrong in the world, Right. But then you get sin as lawlessness, and that's getting at something, right? That's true. But it's not, it's the truth, but it's not the whole truth, so help me God. The early, the early temple um, uh, Jewish community begins to speak about sin exclusively as sin as a weight. 
And it's a communal notion. It's not an individualistic notion, right? So you didn't have like, everybody didn't have the Day of Atonement, their own Day of Atonement, and they could just kind of choose when the Day of Atonement would be. There was one Day of Atonement, it was for the whole community, and you had a high priest who represented the community who would come around and they'd have the scapegoat and all of this weight of sin that's pressed down on the community through all of the broken laws. Mm. He'd place his hands on the scapegoat and he would say, all right, now I'm giving you the weight. And they chase the scapegoat out of town and the weight is lifted. But it was not lifted for all time. Forgiveness was temporary. So the weight would be slowly lowered back down on the shoulders of the community, and next year they would come back together and they'd do it again. Well, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, by the time that you have the, the, the apostles writing the epistles, there's a new way of talking about sin. There's a new branch that has sprouted. It's the understanding of sin as a debt. And it is a debt that is both communal and individualistic. So there's this kind of, you know, this early financial market that's emerging in the Greco-Roman Empire. And so they take the word sin and they kind of reconfigure it or reimagine it to say, here's what's wrong in the world. It's like a debt you owe, a cosmic bank account, if you will. And so Paul says the wages of sin is death. Well, I'm sorry, but if you put Paul... In a time machine, the high priest would not understand what Paul is saying. Wow. Paul, that's a, that's a new branch. You're not going to find that language in the Old Testament. You're just not. And Jesus takes it even further. He, Paul has kind of this negative, if the, you know, the wages of sin is death. So when you sin, you're kind of debiting out of this bank account. Jesus does the opposite and says, well, okay, if you can debit out of the bank account, it stands to reason that you can actually deposit into that account. And so Jesus says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven that will not decay, but will shine till the age to come. You know, this is a new concept. Store up for yourself treasures in a cosmic bank account. And just as you debit out with sin, you can actually deposit in with good deeds, Right. Now, that's one of those views that, that kind of continues on, and it comes to kind of uh, dominate the thinking up in, up in the early church. And of course, it, you have these malformations. You have, uh, well, people say, if you can uh, debit into your bank account in this life, what, if, what about later in life? And so you have indulgences, for example. Well, what happens is, is the reformers do a little bit of deconstruction. And they start to think, maybe we should rethink sin, and maybe indulgences weren't such a good idea. And there's a fracturing that happens, and, and, and they start to talk about sin in new ways. So, for example, today you go into a church and somebody says, you have a sin problem, and Jesus is the sin solution. Well, that, that may be, it may be getting at something true, but don't, don't tell me that's a a biblical idea because it simply is not a biblical idea. The, the notion of the problem-solution language is very much a mid to late 20th century construct, yeah. and it's okay that we use it. It's still getting at something true. Or if you say, I'm sin-sick. Well, apart from one verse where Jesus kind of says, you know, I've come for the sick and, and not the well because you know, the well don't need a doctor, clinical language 
is not really first century language. It's very much a kind of a post-scientific age kind of language. Now, what's right and what's wrong? The answer is not one or the other. It's yes and no. They're all getting at something. And, And we should continue to kind of prune the trees of our language, drawing from the language that we have in the scripture, but also reimagining these terms, not in ways that totally redefine it and totally are subjective, but in ways that help us conceptualize these uh, that are helpful for us in the 21st century with our needs, with our challenges, with our struggles in our day. Oh, man. So, dude, it's a free podcast, Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. You should charge for this. I, seriously, <laughs> but I have to. <laughs> um, one last question before you, because I know we're 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 coming close to uh, the end of the interview here. But um, so so, what is your hope for people after reading this book? It uh, after we start to reengage and and intentionally try to uh, uh, to have spiritual con- meaningful spiritual conversations uh, with our communities around us. What what is the hope? What what is the uh, the goal for the future here? Well, there's two things. One, one of the things that I do is I put in the book, and I didn't add this until later, and it may seem trite to people, and if it is, I don't really care. But <laughs> there's, um, in the end of the book, I put in this how-to guide for seekers and speakers. And what I hope to do is, is to ignite both a top-down and a bottom-up movement. So top-down would be people like you, uh, what I would call Christian elites, people who have podcasts, people who write books, people who write columns, preachers, teachers, professors, uh, people who create content and shape uh, a cultural consciousness. We have to begin speaking God in a way that is more intentional, more rigorous, more courageous, and more imaginative. Mm. And so I hope this book will do that. But then also, what about people who are the podcast listeners, the column readers, the book buyers, the pew sitters? Well, they have a role to play too. Uh, they can use the guide that I leave in the back. It's kind of a step-by-step guide with their children around their, their kitchen table, with their friends around their coffee table, with the people who go to the PTA meetings with them, to the people they meet at the water cooler, with the people they take out to lunch, with the, the, the people that, that exist where they live, work, and play. And what I hope it will do is will help them to be, yes, courageous and imaginative, but also a little more humble, that, that they will bring in people to their circle of influence and begin to ask questions about what those people think and how they imagine these words and how they conceive of these words to allow other people to bring their thoughts and their whole selves to these conversations, to chip away at them as well. Because I think it's in community, that we begin to achieve a higher consciousness of what these words should mean for us. Not just what they have meant or what they do mean, but what they should mean. Because meaning is always defined by the community of speakers. Yeah. And so we have to be more intentional about the way we use this language. And so I hope it will, will actually spark a movement of God seekers and God speakers so that not just so that we go jabbering and talking this stuff again, not just so that we say grace more or mercy more, but so that we'll learn to live graciously 
We'll learn to live mercifully. We'll learn to live compassionately because speaking God, that's only step one. Eventually, I think we have to go out and incarnate these things into uh, our worlds so that our worlds become more, more true, more good, more beautiful, not just because of the words we speak, but also because of the lives we live. Wow. Amen. <laughs> Dude. Wow. This was so much fun. Yeah, it is my pleasure. I hope we can do it again sometime. At any time. And by the way, uh, you have this awesome, we, Adam and I are, are book junkies. And so not only is this book great, but you have this awesome resource in the back of the book for recommended reading. And you included one of my all-time favorite authors who, if that guy were alive today, I think he'd be such an on-demand speaker, Marcus Borg. So I appreciate oh, yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I love that book, uh, Speaking Christian, was a, was a great book. I thought you were going to say uh, John Piper and Justin Taylor, because you know they made it as well. <laughs> That's, you know what, and, and, good, I, and good for you, yes, buddy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Don't listen, I, I, am a, I am an equal opportunity offender, I always say. <laughs> so if somebody, I found that book to be very helpful from a reformed perspective. So I hope that that list will show, I'm trying to, to think broadly, widely, listen to a broad range of voices. Yes, even new Calvinists who love to hate me oftentimes. But I, I tried to read across the spectrum, and I think that list shows from Marcus Borg to John Piper, you're going to find a wide range of influences, and I'm bringing those voices into conversation in this book. People always find it really interesting when I tell them that the, the man that kicked off my, my spiritual wandering was Tim Keller. When he, I mean, he's, he's mm, mm, listening to scores and scores of his sermons and hearing him always say that you need to read widely mm-hmm. got me here. <laughs> and, then yeah. we, and, we inter- know, and we interviewed him because of that. You know, I think, I always think in, um, in article titles. So I think one day you should write an article and the title should be Tim Keller was my gateway drug. Yes. Oh, that's a good one. Because he totally was. Right. Next plug. He post. did. He was your. He was you. You. You smoked the Tim Keller joint, and next thing you know, you're shooting up. You're shooting up on all of this postmodern deconstruction stuff. So strong, thank you, Tim Keller, for your out. contribution. I'm living on the street. You know, I'm just mainlining over right. here. <laughs> that's right. Now, now all you can do, you got to get your Marcus Borg fix every day. Thanks to Tim Keller. I he love has, it. He has no idea. I think he's. I think he's <laughs> slyly smiling. If if he'd heard that, yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think he would. I think he would laugh us off and go back to counting his money from all of his book sales. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably also true. He, he gives it all to Redeemer City to City Man. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, before we let you go, um, where can we send people to stay on top of what you're up to and go grab this book and uh, just you know uh, continue on in the conversation that you've started. Well, you know, all the social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you can find me there. Uh, You can listen. If the people want to listen to my podcast, I've got a political podcast I do with uh, Kirsten Powers from CNN, which is called The Faith Angle. And I also have the Seekers and Speakers podcast, where I sit down with people and discuss the meaning of a word in about a half hour every week. Um, Or my website, jonathanmerritt.com. And I hope people will buy the book, too. Which you can buy where, as they say, wherever fine books are sold. I don't know where they sell like really crappy books, but they don't sell my book there definitely. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Like Adam said at the top, um, it's been a long time coming, and, and we were so thankful that you took some time out to be with us tonight. 
Oh, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Yeah, this was a ton of fun. Thanks, Jonathan. My pleasure. Right the whole time. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I had no idea that this whole interview was going to take that flavor. Yeah. He's just one of those guys who's just brimming with um, just stuff to say, like good stuff to say. Content. And tons of content. Yeah. I mean, we could have, we could have kept going for sure. Uh, but I mean, incredibly nice guy. The book is awesome. Um, I mean, he really, uh, delves into some things that I, I hadn't even considered, you know, I, I mean, especially the thing that struck me. And I think we, we talked about this a little bit during the intro, like that, uh, uh, that, that disconnect between, you know, uh, and I think it comes back to intentionality and being intentional mm-hmm. between what we say and what we actually do and how right. the two, um, really, uh, interact with one another and influence one another. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. No, I, I think that words are incredibly important. Uh, they're in, they're tremendously powerful, and it actually makes me think of you know that that psalm you know that you hear all the time in church that you probably don't even realize it's a psalm. You know, pastors start their sermons with it that, that may the words of my heart or may, may the uh, words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable. And it's like that link between oh the words of my mouth medit so what I say has a direct link to what I think about. Yeah. What my heart thinks about, like what I, there's a link there that the ancients, the wisdom tradition, you know, the psalmists that, you know, understood even back then. It's like, it, it doesn't take a Harvard study to, to figure that out. And so, so much of what becomes deconstruction, honestly, is just laziness with language. Yeah. It really is. It's like, well, what are we actually talking about here? If you say that, if you ever find yourself saying, what are we actually talking about here? You're kind of you're kind of doing some, some healthy deconstruction at that point because you're realizing that some, some calcium, some calcification, some, some crust has come over the beauty of something that's alive and has stopped it from moving, stopped it from having any life, stopped it from having any ability to change things. It's just hardened. It's dead. It's, and it takes a little bit like, wait, like what are we talking about here? to break that stuff off again and like Caputo would say, free it up to its future. Where is it going? Yeah. What does this need to do for us right now? Man, and this is, this is the kind of stuff that the early Christians were doing. Like yes. we, we, we forget that they didn't have the luxury of a Bible and 50 different translations. They were having oral, you know, like conversations, conversations with them. That's how they passed down the tradition. They didn't have anything written down initially. No, they would, they would, they would have these conversations in small groups. Like the things that we're trying to do, you know, with the podcast is, you know, we, we've since the beginning tried to encourage people to get together in their small communities and in their uh, small pockets or whatever, and just engage in conversation. And, and that's, that's what the early Christians did. Totally. And then even, even people that will be like, oh, but the, but the new Testament is a little bit more, you know, didactic. It's a little bit more straightforward. It's, you know, it's, written in a really short amount of time and it's really focused. And yeah, but it's all based on the old Testament, which was based on this right. premise of Midrash, which was dancing with a text and 
dancing, you know, different authors in different contexts and lots of editing. And, you know, there's a, it's alive. There's a conversation happening. And then even adjacent to the Old Testament is all of these targums and all of these, you know, rabbinical writings, uh, the Talmud and, you know, all of these things. It is a conversation. Yeah. You're supposed to wrestle with it. New revelations, new meanings. Yes. Ah, oh, man. Yes. Well, and I think the other part of the book that really hit me too, along with this, is just the the meaning behind certain words, or or the meaning that certain words have taken on over time. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and he talks. So he talks about things like he has this great quote in here where he talks about sin, and he says, "In a world where sin has become a dirty word, brokenness, because that's another." catchphrase, right? Brokenness has become all the rage. We use it to describe circumstances we don't like and often to label people who don't fit our notions of the good Christian life. Totally, man. So think about it. because they're, they're just dealing with their brokenness. Right. Because what that inherently says about the person is that they are, there's something wrong with them that needs to be or can be fixed. Right. So, so we have to, we, I think we have to, and part of what he, I think what he's getting at in this book is we have to we have to take a step back and, and actually think about what these words mean, yep. what they've come to mean, mm-hmm. and the impact that they have on those who we use them around. And, and the other part of it, too, I think that he talks about is we can't be afraid to have these conversations either. No. Because a big part of it, he says, is a lot, of, a lot of Christian speak or Christian lingo tends to be one of those con- conversation stoppers. Totally. You know? Just like, oh, yep, gross. We're gonna have one of those conversations where you're gonna try to beat me over the head with a Bible and yep. get me to join your sweet church. How to ruin a party in ten easy words, <laughs> right? <laughs> have you found Jesus? Oh no, you know, dude. Yeah. I I I just love it that like when I'm at my job and it's like happy hour after a meeting or whatever. I typically and I don't know how it always happens. I end up finding somebody that wants to talk about this stuff. Exactly. Somehow, I don't yeah. know how, but it just always happens. But like a real, authentic, like a great conversation, manufactured conversation, right? No, like a fun, rich, energizing, yeah. deep conversation, right? So much fun. I love it. Me too, man. <laughs> We're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> so anyway, get the book, "Learning to Speak God from Scratch." Follow Jonathan Merritt. Um, he's got another great podcast with Kristen Powers called "The Faith Angle." I think that's a relevant joint. Um, yeah, and then uh, a whole bunch of other content as well. Yeah, as you could tell from this interview, uh, he doesn't need a whole lot of winding for him to go. You just ask that dude one question, and he just rocks. He's brimming with uh, with content. So, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, Good question. Yeah, we've we've got some uh, we've got some tunes. We do tickling our ears here. <laughs> Adam's like staring at me as I frantically like flip through my phone. I'm like, wait, who did I? Who, who is it? Who, who, who is it? Who is it this week? Ah, um, Morning Parade. Totally forgot about that. Oh, yeah. So Morning Parade is one of, this is like music from one of my favorite records ever. And it's a band. They put out uh, two albums, if I remember correctly, if I've done my research. And, and, they, and they, they disbanded. They broke up, which is very, very sad. Um, they're from the UK. Like the Civil Wars. Exactly. <laughs> but like just wrote great songs. Like they're catchy. They're, I mean, I just love them. They're one of my favorite bands. And so they were gracious enough to let us use their, their music on there. So go check them out. Go buy their music and uh, support them. And of course, we'll update our Spotify playlist and it'll be on there too. So, yep. For now. Yeah. 
Keep having conversations, everybody. It's what it's all about. Figure out how to do that. If it means breaking these words down, if it means finding new words, do it. But this is what it means when we say keep deconstructing it. It means bring it to life. Don't destroy it. Bring it to life. Break the calcium off of it. Loosen it all up again and uh, make it live. Uh, Have fun. Own it. Have fun. Exactly. Make it your journey. No more belief by proxy. We got to get involved. Um, That's what this is all about. So for now, we are your overly enthusiastic hosts. (laughs) I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, everyone.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.